I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Karen Chung, is a writer and journalist from Hong Kong. She has written about politics, music, and books for the New York Times, Foreign Policy, The Rumpus, This American Life, The Offing, and others. She was formerly a reporter at Hong Kong Free Press and currently works as an editor at an arts archive. Normally lives in Hong Kong. At the moment, she's in London in a writing program. And her first book, The Impossible City, a Hong Kong memoir, was published in 2021 and is the subject of today's interview. So, Karen, in your book, Impossible City, you interweave two narrative strands, one being the painful childhood you experienced and later mental health struggles. And in the other strand, you're witnessing of the heartbreaking transition of Hong Kong to authoritarian rule. I'm wondering, what was it like to write about these two interwoven subjects in a single book? First of all, thanks for having me. (laughs) When I was first approached with the idea of maybe doing a book about Hong Kong, I was really thinking about how it was going to be possible to contain three decades of what has happened since to Hanover, plus everything that was going on in my life for the past decade into what is probably not going to be more than 300 pages. And that task felt extremely daunting because I know that opportunities like this don't come very often. There is, I feel like sometimes a limited amount of attention that gets given to specific places on the quote unquote, you know, world stage of politics. And when I was thinking about how I was going to write this book, I thought the only thing that was really going to be possible is if I wrote it, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to be an expert on anything but my own experiences and how I experienced of the past decade. And so I really chose episodes that I felt were important to me. So that included several years that I talked about in the book, which included 1997, 2003, 2014, each for individual reasons, political and social reasons, and sort of wove my own uh, just, I think, childhood experiences and also my scattered memories of what it was like living through those things as a kid and from the perspective of what you understand as a kid and then slowly growing up and having more experience with the so-called political enlightenment that people in Hong Kong of a certain generation, but certainly my generation experienced. And so that was really, I think, the starting point of it. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. Well, it it gives us a a flavor. And and one other background question before we sort of launch into the content is, you grew up trilingual, and I, I assume that means Cantonese first, and then English in school, and, and then also Mandarin in school. Sort of, yeah. Sort of. So I really, I, I'm aware that there are two of the languages spoken in China, and I think there are a lot more than two, but the two most prominent are Mandarin first, and then Cantonese in the South. South, yeah. And are those two languages very different, or are they more like dialects? There is a big debate about... <sighs> whether Cantonese is a language or a dialect, you know, what is the, what is the definition of a dialect? What, you know, how a language gets the so-called official status as a language, that's very much up for debate in terms of categories and, and you know, 
cultural dominance and also, you know, what, what other people, what other, what are the people and cultures and languages that get sort of sidelined in a big national narrative and so on. But so just for a little bit of background, my mother is from mainland China, and that's why she speaks Mandarin. And she and my brother immigrated to Singapore when I was a kid. So in Singapore, they speak Mandarin and and my mother speaks Mandarin. So even though she does understand and speak a little bit of Cantonese, well, she does speak Cantonese. It's just not super fluent. But when when I, when I was growing up, I would speak Cantonese with my father. I would speak English with my brother because he grew up in Singapore attending English speaking schools. And a lot of the times I would speak Mandarin with my mother. And that was how the quote unquote trilingual ability came about. But a lot of it had to do with schooling as well because of the different types of schools that I attended. Right. And, and you speak with a virtually no accent, and if anything, I would say an American accent. I mean, how, how did you come by that? So I went to international school from the ages of six to 12, and I went to Singapore international school. And what happened was I actually ended up with a very heavy Singaporean accent, especially because my brother also grew up in Singapore, and he has a very heavy Singlish accent. And could, could you could you imitate that? I right I can if <laughs> I am drunk, but I would <laughs> I would prefer not to. Okay, all right. But yeah, so my my brother speaks with that accent, and growing up, you know, we would talk on the phone, and some of my classmates would speak with that accent as well. And when I went back to a public school in Hong Kong, I was starting to realize that I could not speak that way because it was not very legible to my classmates. And I was watching a lot of American TV at the time. So that accent sort of, I think it, when you're a teenager, you are very good at emulating just sounds and the way people speak. And I just ended up sort of beating this English accent out of me, which I guess is also not a very it's it's weird, right? Like, what is the what is the socially acceptable slash you know like post colonial? There's so many accents, but yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll get to that term post colonial. That's that's a really loaded one. But clearly, you have both a good ear and the motivation to pick up whatever accent you wanted to. So, kudos to you on that. <laughs> I mean, being in London right now, I, I definitely cannot do a British accent, and there are people in Hong Kong who went to the better schools, more reputable schools, I think they would try to speak with a little bit more of a British accent. I have never been able to do it. Even now being surrounded by British people and hearing it every single day, I understand it a lot better now, but I can't pick it up at all. So maybe that that is for me. <laughs> Maybe the the window for accents closed for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you quote English professor Douglas Kerr who as saying, "quote Why articulate a modern Hong Kong Chinese experience in a residual colonial English language brought to the China coast with the traders, the missionaries, and the gunboats of empire?" And and just also part of this question is that in your book, which is in English, you do include some lines of untranslated Chinese characters. Yeah. And could you talk about that? Because that, that was really interesting. I mean, to see that in the in the book and say, so, wait a second, I don't know what this says. It's not translated. <laughs> this is an ongoing debate, I think, for several years that I've had with either people around me or editors. And I think everyone has had different justifications for 
whether or not something should or should not be translated. So I remember writing for a publication, I think around last year, and I did have Chinese words as well. It was sort of a record of a conversation that I heard on the streets, and I included it in Chinese characters in the actual draft that I sent the editor. And in the end, it was taken out, replaced with just a translated version that I gave him. I don't know how effective it was, and probably it wasn't. But what I tried to do was when I put Chinese in the book, there are enough context clues that I feel like you don't necessarily have to know what was said, but you could sort of guess at it with what happens before and after and also what people say in response to that Chinese character. It's kind of a nod in a sense to any readers of the book that do read Chinese. And it sort of gives them a little bit of an inside feeling, I guess, in a sense. And, and, and the opposite for a non-Chinese speaker, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm outside this experience, you know, peering in, being introduced to it, but I'm not Chinese, you know, I'm not a Chinese speaker. I think, so what I was trying to do and again, I really do not know how effective it was, but when I read English books, or sometimes even when I read certain post-colonial English books, you would see certain terms or words or just cultural, uh, even lingo or dialectic phrasings or other kinds of slang that I would never fully understand and I would have to look up or even consult somebody from that cultural context in order to be able to understand the book. And I just think that a lot of the times when you're reading something that's not from your cultural context, you just have to accept that there are things that you might not necessarily understand. And I think that experience is a lot less common for maybe American and English readers, because most of what has been in the so-called literary canon has been easy for them to comprehend, or at least it's not a huge hurdle. Whereas for me, growing up and trying to learn English and also reading books from other places, I just always see terms that I felt like I thought I had a grasp on the language, but then I understood that there were things that weren't legible to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you're right about that. And, and by doing it the way you did it, you're giving the English reader a kind of a little taste of what it's like for everyone else. It, it wasn't out of, you know, like, you did this to me, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> it was really more like I only did that when I felt like translating it would lose the the, the tangible, or not tangible, but intangible, just feeling of warmth or just the way that a sentence is said in Cantonese. I feel like by putting the words there, it has communicated what the speaker has intended, you know, the affect, on the affect level, you know, the emotion they want to convey. And when I felt like that was going to be lost, I, I, see it as being untranslatable. And when I feel like it's untranslatable, I do not want to okay. create a version of it on the page. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair enough. So you went to an international school for until, I guess, for most of your... Until I was 12. 
It's really 12. Okay, so more like elementary, what we, we, we might call elementary school. I think, yeah. And you, and you describe it in your book as, as a kind of, in order, that gaining fluency in English was a kind of a guarantee for upward mobility and continued privilege, that just opening up all kinds of job opportunities. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about what your experience was at the international school and, and how it, it impacted your, your particular sub-variety of Hong Kong identity. That's a very loaded question, <laughs> which I pose in a book, so it is entirely my, <laughs> my doing. But so when I started going to an international school, I had no idea what I was getting into, mostly because I was six. And I think when you're six years old, you know, you really just do as your parents tell you. And I, I had a very vague notion, and as I think also most children do, of what class was and what particularly my family's class background was. And it was extremely confusing. And actually, I think to this day, it remains extremely confusing to me, not because, yeah, because I think that categories of, you know, middle, middle, upper middle are a little always in fluctuation in Hong Kong, if that makes sense. My father grew up extremely working class and my family was working class. And my father was really sort of the only person in my family who ended up not working a typical middle-class job. And so he was a businessman and he really grasped onto that period of economic growth in China, acting as a middleman between Western companies and China and and in Hong Kong at the time as a British colony, we were sort of in this position to be able to really take, quote unquote, take advantage of that. And so that was where my father's money and wealth came from at the time. And so when that opportunity was gone, I, I was not able to attend the international school anymore. And the reason I talk about this in in your in answer to your question about international school is because it really is the the school fees which I include in the book itself are not affordable for the majority of people. When I went back to a public school, the, most of the things were free and most of majority of my classmates lived in public housing estate. So you really lived in two two different worlds at different times and I think that's maybe helped you give you empathy for the kind of class struggle in a sense. So use another loaded term. Yeah, I think it does. And it also makes me a little more jaded from an earlier age. I think I learned to be more forgiving in my late 20s as in like in the past couple of years. But I think I, I just, I think a lot of Hong Kong identity, identity is such a vague term. What I was really trying to track, I'm, I'm trying to backtrack here, but what I was really trying to track is how difficult it could be to be involved in politics when you are separated by this gulf of language and also of class. And that is what a lot of international school students end up experiencing. They live in a very specific bubble in Hong Kong that sort of insulates them from the rest of Hong Kong society. And I went through this trajectory as well of trying to understand what my place is in Hong Kong, not necessarily being of the typical, mostly Cantonese speaking, feeling mostly dissimilar from 
many of my friends in the public school growing up and also later in university because I attended university in Hong Kong. You did that because your family didn't have the wealth to send you abroad, right? To any university you wanted to. I Yeah, I, I did not look at overseas universities. I, I am sure there are scholarships that could have been available, but I, I was not in a school at the time with the kind of resources or understanding that they were going to let me know of that. And I, 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 I don't know how to explain this apart from the fact that when you're 17 and your world is kind of small without someone to point you in the way of right right no absolutely i just i did not research them on my own i was like this is the best i could do i'm going to university of hong kong yeah you didn't you didn't have the guidance that you needed i mean it sounds like your father was not a, such a great guiding force in general and your mother was in singapore and then you had your grandmother but you know she she died when you were fairly young so you, you didn't have, you know, the family support that you might have needed to make to broaden your decision making. Yeah, but I was reflecting on this a couple of weeks ago with another friend of mine who came to the UK, came to Britain around the same time as me last September. And we went to university together. We did the same program, which was literature and law. And at the time, both of us would have had scored enough in our public school exams to be able to go elsewhere and neither of us could do it financially we could afford it and we were just thinking actually we we're both pretty grateful that we spent all that time in hong kong because i think the, the past 10 years were very important to witness and if it weren't for the fact that we were there i don't think we would have had the same life experiences or insight that would allow us to be able to appreciate being able to do a degree when you're 30. So you, you mentioned uh, literature and law, or I think in the book it's law and literature. That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting combination. I've never heard of that combination here in the States. And clearly you gravitated more to the literature and then the law end eventually. But how, how did, tell us about that program and why law and literature in one program? So it's a double degree program and it's fairly common in University of Hong Kong for the law faculty. So there is engineering and law, which they discontinue because I think they recognize that it was crazy to require a student to study both engineering and law, which are both very intensive. There's business and law, which makes a lot more sense. There is politics and law, which also makes sense. And when I started doing literature and law, that was the first year that the university offered that program. And it, I, I still think it makes a lot of sense to put those two things together because ultimately both degrees and disciplines are about close reading, if you think about it, and how words can either be reinterpreted or distorted in order to fit a certain kind of narrative. And so those are part of the things that we would study and talk about. And also just the relationship between, between how certain legal developments in the real world would affect the reading of a text or films that get made and vice versa. So let's shift gears now and talk a little bit about Hong Kong's history and geography. And I was wondering if you can maybe provide us just a kind of a thumbnail to some brief facts about both the geography and history. I think most of us here in the States are, have heard of Hong Kong, have seen it in the news, certainly during the transition to power and the protests we've heard about it then. But I think even growing up, I grew up in New York City and I certainly knew of Hong Kong. I knew more or less where it was. But just for, for, for those of us who don't know anything, let's say, 
What can you tell us about, about Hong Kong history and geography, I mean, particularly as it pertains to your book? So when I was writing the book, I decided to really focus on just the history of around 1997 to 2019, 20, so on. And I, I think I feel more comfortable speaking about that period as well, just because I did not include research or historical background in the colonial era because I feel like actually a lot of books have been published about what Hong Kong was like as a British colony. Some of them were by British expat writers and I wanted to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, just to keep the focus on something that I felt like I was going to be able to work with and that was the scope. But so just a brief history from I think around 1997, that was when Britain no longer ruled Hong Kong as a, we were no longer a British colony starting from 1997. Let me, let me just interrupt a second, just in terms of geography. One thing that I I learned from your book that I didn't realize is I thought it was an island, you know, well off the coast of China and and it's connected by a causeway. It's, It's really no further away than, well, than maybe Manhattan is to the mainland of the United States. I mean, it's, it's, it's right, it's right next to the mainland, right? I get into this argument with editors all the time who want to describe Hong Kong as an island and it drives me a little nuts every time. And I realize it is misleading because Hong Kong Island is an actual place. Hong Kong Island is one of the three main areas, regions of, of Hong Kong. So there's Kowloon as new territories and there's Hong Kong Island. And Hong Kong Island is sort of, yeah, it is an island, but it's, it's, it's the <laughs> Kowloon and new territory encompass a, a bigger part of Hong Kong are both collect, so-called connected to the China, China mainland. And you can take a bus from mainland China over to Hong Kong without crossing a bridge or... Yeah, so I... <laughs> it is it is misleading and I have been trying to explain it, but, you know, there are also a series of outlying islands that are around Hong Kong and they are all part of Hong Kong as well. So you would have to take a ferry to get to those places, but they're also part of Hong Kong itself. Right, but those places would not be the densely populated part, right? No, no, no. They would be, they're more, you can describe them sort of as villages. Yeah, so the implication for me is that, you know, in terms of it, Hong Kong being belonging to, to, to Britain, I mean, it's, it's, I can imagine it from a mainland Chinese point of view. So what do you, what do you mean it belongs to Britain? You know, this is, this is our territory. It's right here. As it's not like, you know, Taiwan is, is much further, you know, from the, from the coast. And that's a serious, that's a real island. It's not, you know, you can't take a bus. <laughs> I don't think uh, distance has necessarily stopped, you know, countries. In 1841, that was when Hong Kong started becoming a British colony. And so when I was writing the book, I was trying to track basically what it means. How far do you go back in history for a place to belong to another and a lot of the times and you see this for instance not to draw a very specific parallel with it but you know you see this sometimes with claims like russia over ukraine as well you know it's it's things like historically they have always been part of you know our territory or our culture is the same as their culture 
And this is also basically what China's narrative is for Hong Kong. And a lot of scholars in the past decade or so, what they're trying to figure out is, is there an emerging separate Hong Kong identity? And to, to that, after all these years of being colonized, has it led to something that maybe looks a bit different from what the trajectory of Chinese history and culture, you know, that development has looked like. And that is also something that right now is under a lot of spotlight or debate because, you know, under national security law, if you are advocating for separatism, which is why the, the term of believing that Hong Kong is separate from China is, you could be placed in jail. But to retrace it back in 1997, when Hong Kong ceased to be a British colony, we were supposed to have 50 years unchanged. That was what it was called at the time. So there was a deadline of, okay, Hong Kong can keep its way of life and its capitalist con economic system until 2047. And that was sort of the date that I grew up with. Yeah, so ca so capitalist system, of course, mainland China is also has become quite capitalist in a lot of ways, but also Western style freedoms, right? So the, as a result of being colonized by the British, there was a kind of importation of the culture of freedom of expression, for instance, and kind of diversity of ideas, and maybe a higher tolerance for for nonconformism. You know, because I think of Chinese culture as, as a highly conformist group group oriented kind of culture, as opposed to an individualistic, you know, nonconforming culture. And which isn't to say that Western cultures aren't conforming in their own way, but still, there would be, I think, some some differences there. And, and you, were, you, know, you spoke to sort of a separate identity and the kind of merging of Chinese culture and Western culture, I mean, it seems like that would lead to something different. Yeah, so what you mentioned just now in terms of freedoms, that is definitely, I think, the most important part of it. When I say, you know, being able to maintain our way of life, from the understanding of Hong Kong people at the time, that means keeping our separate court system. That means keeping an electoral system for legislature. And that also means, you know, being able to have freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, and all of the things that were not necessarily, you know, they, they, they were tense as well at points during the British colonial rule. There were riots in 1967. There were protests against the British colonial government and a lot of reforms in terms of social welfare really only came towards the end of <laughs> the, the British colonial rule. And so that is not to say, you know, things were much better. Clearly, you don't romanticize the old version un under British rule. I mean, the, the Yes, there was an electoral system, but the way you described it in your book is that it was really dominated by privileged classes of landowners and property owners, and that they really created a very inequitable system, which is not, that's not, not true only of Hong Kong. That's true of a lot of places where it's, you know, it's supposedly a democratic, you know, in terms of the electoral system, but economically it's, you know, very unequal. Yeah. So that continued to be a case after the handover. And our legislature, so the executive branch of the government government was not for people to be 
it, it was not for people to democratic democratically elect them anyway, they were appointed. But with the legislature, in terms of passing of bills and so on, they half of it at the time was democratically elected by the people. And when, when Hong Kong was so-called handed over back to China, it was written in the basic law, which was the mini constitution. I, I don't know why they call it that, but it's always been called the mini constitution in, in the media. It, it, it has been said that Hong Kong is meant to gradually take steps towards universal suffrage. And that was the so-called promise that China had given at the time of the handover. And so when I was growing up and mostly in my adolescence and also in my university, post-university, early post-university years, that was the biggest question of them all was, were we going to be able to have universal suffrage because China started looking like it was not going to make good on its promise. And that was the impetus for the, the major protests that broke out in 2014. And that was the occupation movement in Hong Kong. Yeah. And it's clear in your book that in your view, and not just your view, that China really reneged on it, the promises it made to the British when the British handed over Hong Kong, that these the, the freedoms and the democratic process that have been promised really went by the wayside quite quickly. Not immediately, though. I mean, it took, what, maybe 20 years? Yeah. So in the beginning, there were still sort of these pockets among the Hong Kong democratic camp that it was possible that China would actually go on to this trajectory of some people had hoped at least that China would go on this trajectory where they would actually become increasingly like Hong Kong. And as you, as you said, you know, it, it, the economic system has not been, has not been communist for a while in China. And there was a time that people had hoped that it was possible for Hong Kong to sort of serve as an example. And I, Looking back, I would think that it was a bit naive, but I also understand that it was different political circumstances. But yes, at the time, it, it, it was thought that it could have been possible that China would keep its promise, at least if not of granting universal suffrage, but keeping things unchanged until 2047. And when that did not seem to be the case, that was when a lot of the political movements really found its beginning. And one of the people who, one of the activists right now who are detained, Joshua Wong, he really started with the student movement back in the early 2010s. And that was for protesting against national education. And it was when China and, well, the Hong Kong government wanted to introduce quote unquote, patriotic education in Hong Kong schools. And that was really alarming to a lot of people, including people who were students at the time, because they were worried that it would mean it, there would be different versions of history in textbooks. Yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Things like 1989, you know, the, the Tiananmen movement would perhaps not be mentioned. And that was, yeah, so that was one of the early movements in the 2010s and also an early sign that things would not remain unchanged until 2047. 
But but the very early stages, I guess, with the handover was in ninety seven. Is that right? Yes. In two thousand three, the Hong Kong government proposed a national security bill that would punish sedition, treason, subversion, and secession. Yes. And and there was a, a a massive protest of a half a million people in the streets, and the bill was withdrawn. Yes. But it was reintroduced in, in twenty twenty, so seventeen years later, and and by then the dissent was not strong enough to stop it. There was perhaps even more. I would think, I would say there would be there was more dissent in in twenty twenty when it was reintroduced. It was just at the time after the twenty nineteen protests and also their very rapid crackdown on dissidents. Right, a really massive crackdown, and and also it was at the, at the beginning of COVID, so that was an, an additional reason why the Chinese government, mainline Chinese government, could crack down because well, you can't gather in large numbers because of COVID. Yes. So what was happening was 2019. There were protests for about half a year. It was still happening in January of 2020, but when COVID began, it. The the authorities were able to prevent people from gathering with public order, you know, like public health and safety orders, and it became illegal at some points in the pandemic to gather in groups of more than two people on the streets out in the public. Two people, amazing. Yeah, because I rem- I remember this clearly because last year around this time it was my friend's birthday and we were trying to eat a birthday cake outside on the street and we had to then there were three of us and so one person had to sit really far away just in case one of the cops would come over and tell you that you're not supposed to gather but yeah so that was part of the reason the protests really stopped rather abruptly and then. By June of 2020, in May of 2020, the national security law was announced, and by the last day of June, first of July in 2020, the national security law had already been enacted. Right, and and I and if I remember right, the the, the most pernicious part of that law was an ex- extradition clause that allowed protesters to be whisked away and imprisoned in China, and that was that was particularly frightening, I would think. So that's sort of separate. The protest in 2019 was triggered by the extradition bill, and that was actually what ended up le- causing millions of people to hit the streets in the first place. That's sort of the trigger for it, and that bill would allow what China and authorities in Hong Kong were calling, you know, criminals to be sent from Hong Kong to China, and that concern was. You know, we have separate judicial systems. We have a separate understanding of what constitutes a crime. You know, over in China and in Hong Kong, you know, cert- certain people who would be arrested in China for speaking out against the government, if they come over to Hong Kong, which you know, traditionally for decades and generations, dissidents in China have you know made made it over to Taiwan and Hong Kong. They perhaps would not be safe anymore, and it would also cast doubt on whether or not, you know, people in Hong Kong who speak out against Chinese government would continue to be safe if they could be extradited over to China. And that was really the concern and the stimulus for the extradition bill. And, but it also went on for you know, 
a variety of reasons, including police brutality, including including just general calls for universal suffrage again, because that the hope for that had not died entirely after the 2014 protests. And, the, and these protests were, were, I imagine, comprised mostly of, of young people, so students and people in their 20s and 30s, or was it broader than that? No, it was much broader than that. In 2014, it was more of it was more of a student-led movement. By 2019, it really had become a thing of people from all walks of society joining in. So you would have people who would set up specific concern groups for extradition bills, and they would sign petitions. There were groups of, so for instance, medical professionals and nurses and doctors banding together. There would be people from specific geographic regions banding together. There would be even what we call the silver silver haired people, which was the older generation wanting to show their support for to the younger generation of of going out and protesting. And it it really was a much more anonymous and broader movement than it was in 2019. In 2019, people yet felt the need to go entirely in protest gear where you would have to cover your faces, you would have to be ready to potentially get tear gas every single time you go out. That that did not happen in 2014. That did happen in 2019 where every single time for that period of six months, every time you go out, it, even when you weren't involved in a protest, you could be expected that they could be tear gassing. Could get caught up in it, yeah, yeah. So I'd like to, to shift gears a little bit and talk about what your experience was of kind of witnessing the these protests at, at, at a certain phase of them anyway from afar because you were on in a semester abroad program in Scotland. And what, what was that like for you that must have been so, so painful to be so far away? It was very alienating, but at the same time, it really took the benefit of hindsight to reflect on what that meant. I, at the time I was at University of Hong Kong, which traditionally has been a pretty pretty well-known university. It's the oldest university in the city and it's been well known for sort of breeding these lawyers and activists and you know medical professionals and so on. And um and so there was always student activism when I was in campus as a student in the first three years. By the fourth year I was on exchange and I hadn't really reconciled or you know understood what my own political inclination was at the time, mostly because I had not fully understood it. And I think I it took me a long time to feel like I was part of the city for all the reasons that we mentioned briefly, you know, being part of an international school in the first six years, I did not really feel much of a connection to the city itself. I lived very much in the sort of like online world of other cultures. So when 2014 happened, every, almost every single one of my classmates in university had gone out to protest. Some of the people who were my ex-flatmates who I lived with for, you know, two or three years at that point, you know, they they would really just be camping out and sleeping on, on the pavement for a couple of days at a time. And I remember seeing that and thinking this very early stirrings of 
what it must be like to stand up for something that you really believe in with all of these people that you grew up with for the city that you think that you would be in until the day you die. That sense of both solidarity and, and the power of seeing that many people come out for the first time. And well, in, in 2003, as a, there was also a protest and, and you also correctly talked about it just now, there were about half a million people who showed up and I was too young to understand. I didn't, you know, I, I knew that it happened and I saw it on newspaper headlines, but it was different from living through it as a young adult. And when I was in Scotland and really watching a lot of the live feed, watching the students get tear gas on the first night, I remember very distinctly, it was in the afternoon in Glasgow and I, it was evening in Hong Kong. The protests often went on till late in the evening and I was just watching the Apple Daily live feed. Apple Daily is a newspaper that has since been you know, shut down by the government, but there was a live feed at the time. And I remember just, I was supposed to be working on papers or something and I was just sitting on a couch in the library and just being unable to move and just glued to the live stream for like, I think two or three hours. And it, it would just continue. Like I just kept doing that for many days. And and then when I came back, it was very common, I think back then, and, in, and even now of people to always feel this guilt of what you could have done that you could, you had not done enough, you know, and for me, I knew I, I really had not done enough because I, I wasn't even there. I, I was away. And so that was actually how I ended up started deciding to become a journalist because I felt like I did not know enough about the city that I grew up in. And I knew that I had at least a basic level of writing skills and i was hoping that i was going to be able to feel to get to know the city better through something that i was comfortable doing and and that was yeah that was how i started reporting yeah you you quote some research from the medical journal journal the lancet which is probably the most well-known medical journal coming out of the uk and it said that the demonstrations from the second half of 2019 yielded a, a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder among 2 million Hong Kong adults. I mean, that's, that's more than a quarter of the population of Hong Kong, which is about 7 million. I mean, that's really an extraordinary finding. So I, I have to clarify, the, the report says symptoms of PTSD, and that is not necessarily you know, that is not that is not the journal saying that people have identified and diagnosed people with it. And so what that means was during the protests, during the duration of the protests and afterwards, there were people who demonstrated these signs of what it would look like. Okay. All right. So, so maybe technically speaking, it might have been what's kind of a, a syndrome that can occur right after. Whereas, you know, that most, that most people will have stress symptoms lasting several weeks after a very traumatic event, whereas it only, in a minority of cases, it actually results in long-term PTSD. But it is, it is interesting. So I, in, in London right now, I, I've been volunteering as an English teacher to parents from Hong Kong who immigrated over. And so it's, it's, it's at a local Chinese association in my neighborhood. And a couple of days ago, I was teaching them what to do if they are feeling unwell and if they have to go to the NHS. And they're asking me things like, okay, how do you say, you know, phlegm? How do you say fever? How do you 
eczema and so on. And then one parent was like, what about PTSD? What does it stand for? And then I was like, traumatic stress disorder. And then someone else, another parent there was like, we all have it. And then everybody laughs. And then I just thought that was like, a, that was just such a weird and telling moment. Yeah, well, well, there, there was a kind of a collective trauma. I mean, that's not a psychiatric diagnosis, but nevertheless, I mean, there was a kind of sharing and this kind of traumatic event or series of events. And, and as well as a sense of a tremendous loss of, you know, what Hong Kongers thought their country or their territory, whatever you want to call it, was going to be. And it's, it's not only just the more, you know, bigger, I don't want to say abstract trauma because it's very real, but a lot of the trauma has to do with, you know, first of all, if, if you're a parent of a young kid, right, not knowing when you can go out during the weekends, during the protests, because you were worried that they might get tear gas, you know, your kids might get tear gas by accident, just on the streets. If you have people, if you have, if you have young, if you're a parent to a young person who is going out all the time protesting, you might worry about their safety. In the aftermath of it, it the police kept arresting dissidents and former activists at six in the morning or five in the morning. So what happens with, for a while, I would wake up in the middle of the night or every single morning I would check the news and it would be about something that they had done. You know, they would have arrested this person or that person and they would have a lot of these raids. And, you know, when it happens sort of over a period of time, it, it really disrupts with your own psychological, you know, state and also your mental well-being. I, last year, early last year when I was still in Hong Kong, I had very intense insomnia that has lasted for a long time. I, I've had insomnia that just started in 2019, but, but yeah, like sleep, sleep was definitely a very serious problem for me. I know of people here who have moved away for about a year and a half and are still experiencing sleep problems. I, I just, I had so much anxiety all the time and was worried about, a lot of people were worried about jail. And I, I just want to say that sometimes with me and friends who used to be activists, we would just talk about this thing like, okay, stop worrying about it because they have such a long list of people to arrest from. They're not going to arrest you. Like, who do you think you are? Like the police don't support enough and so on. But this is to say that, yes, that is correct. Like, but also it is, it is still real. Like you can't tell somebody who, even if nobody knows about them and they feel far away from the politics of it all. You can't tell them that, you know, oh, you're just being unrealistic. They're not going to arrest you. That's not going to make them sleep better at night or have less anxiety because that was the political environment that the entire city was in at the time. And I think there have been studies conducted about journalists as well, because a lot of my close friends, I stopped being a reporter before 2019. And in 2019, I was still writing, but I wasn't really reporting anymore. And definitely not on the front lines, whereas a lot of my friends were, and they were still working a report as reporters. Some of them are still reporters today. And you really have to have a certain kind of mental constitution and willpower, I feel like, to be able to, to keep 
doing it. And if I mentioned this to them, I think they would just scoff at me and they'll just be like, you know, like someone has to do it. Yeah. So I, th I think what you're getting at is that you could either have the anxiety of, of, of being in the middle of these events and, and being afraid of either arrest or tear gassing or injury, or you can be you can be outside of those events and feel guilty for not being inside. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a terrible dilemma. Yeah, <laughs> that I think pretty much sums up part of the legacy of 2019. <laughs> So we, we, we only have a little bit of time left, but you, you, you very bravely talk about your mental health struggles, which I guess really kind of emerged in, in force in Scotland, I think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think, a, a, it serves a really good purpose to, to be able to disclose that kind of thing and to normalize it for people and not to make it the opposite, which it would be a shameful subject that's never mentioned, which is true for, I think, for a lot of cultures and families. And, you know, and, and for you, of course, it was intertwined with all this turmoil in, in Hong Kong and your, your struggle of, of feeling guilty for not being there and all that. And it sounds like the, the process of going through all that and being able to write about it, I imagine, must have been very helpful, not only for the reader, but for you. I don't really know about that. I've been trying to reflect upon that. There have been people, therapists and so on, that say, you know, writing in itself there are different consequences to writing. So my therapist has told me that writing about certain experiences do help you let go of it a little more. Well, or, or to reframe it in, in a way that's that feels like it sort of makes sense and it could be sort of a, a partially puts a rest in a sense, you know, because it, it's framed in a way that you can live with maybe. That's part of it. I think, you know, a, a huge part of mental health is the, the feeling of not having control, right? And when you wrestle it into a narrative, that in a sense feels like you are taking back control over something that at the time you had no control over. Um, and what my therapist was saying about letting it go is a lot of the people, sometimes trauma continues to live within their bodies because they are so worried that if they let it go, then there is no proof that it has happened if that makes sense. For instance, like some people hold on to traumatic memories of childhood because they feel like it hasn't been addressed or acknowledged by the people around them. And they're worried that if they let it go, then it will never, you know, they will never get redressed for, you know, the, the pain that they suffered. But at the same time, it, it's also been said that writing about these traumatic experiences sometimes end up reopening wounds. What my therapist has told me actually at some point about heartbreak is that like when you write about heartbreak, and I think sometimes, you know, it, it applies to a city as well. A city can also break your heart. When you write about heartbreak, it, there is a specific kind of healing time and it restarts from a specific point, which is when you've decided, okay, this thing is over, like this, this heartbreak is over or this relationship is over and so on. And that time from then onwards is the time when you could start to heal. But every single time you revisit it while you're in the midst of the process and closure hasn't been attained, you are basically resetting the clock back to zero and you have to, you know, wait for time to work its magic again. So I don't really know. I personally, I can't really tell if, if you know, writing about it has helped or not helped. I do think that uh, with this book, it feels like I am able to just pour a lot of things that I have been holding on to myself over the past three decades. And it does feel good to be able to let it out because now I think, okay, it's, this is probably the next phase in my life. Like hopefully I will be able to just stop thinking about it. 
Right, right. I mean, and certainly by t writing about it, you've demonstrated how meaningful all those experiences were, that they're not something that should be just wished away, but that they're a big part of you and they give you understanding and empathy for other people. And, you know, that's that's all, all to the good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you talk very eloquently about your grandmother. You wrote, my grandmother wanted me when neither of my parents did. She fed me, bathed me, loved me. But anyone raised by a grandparent knows of that watershed moment when you become old enough to realize that the shrunken skin and eggshell hair on the person you love is an indicator that they are old and old people tend to die. You start counting down the days and everything in life aches with the loss of that is to come. My grandmother never intended to abandon me, but when the day came, she had no choice. So, you know, beautifully written, and, you know, that's, you know, probably your first experience of impending loss, I would say. Yeah. And that really kind of maybe sensitized you to, to other losses. Yeah, I was thinking about that, which is, you know, like, growing up, I'm not, I, I don't know what it's like for people who didn't grow up with a very apparently older person or was completely, you know, that person being their primary caregiver, but at the same time it's just i what i what i was thinking is when that happens you become conscious of mortality so early on in your life you feel like you know you would lose this person anytime and i think it's it's not unlike the way that you know i also grew up knowing that 2047 was a certain kind of spelling out of a death of Hong Kong, if, which was the common narrative at the time. People liked talking about the death of Hong Kong all the time. They talked about it before the 1997 Hanover. They talked about it as if 2047 was going to be another death. And whether or not that is true, and even now with 2020, with the national security law, a lot of people have said that was also a point of a death of Hong Kong. I... I <laughs> I think that's debatable, but at the same time, I I think that sort of constant awareness of mortality for me has been both always both personal and also political. And yeah, like I, I don't know what it's like to live and move through the world without thinking about mortality all the time. <laughs> Well, mortality is an ending, and, and this this interview also needs to end, <laughs> unfortunately. But it's been uh, really a, you've done an impressive job of interweaving these different strands of of your life and, and politics, and both personal and political. So thank you so much, Karen Chung, a writer and journalist from Hong Kong, currently living in, in London temporarily. Her first book, The Impossible City: A Hong Kong Memoir, was published in 2021. So thank you so much for coming on to delving in. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.